going at the beginning of the TV show American Idol, and then Ryan Seacrest comes on and says what? This is American Idol. Right. This show's been on the air for about 12 seasons now, and it is a, uh, it's a regular in my household. I enjoy watching that. Uh, my family enjoys watching it a little bit more. At first, the title of this show kind of bothered me. I kept thinking, boy, that's close to sacrilegious, American Idol and all. I don't doubt that in a lot of households and for a lot of people, the show has become kind of an idol. But I've gotten to where I don't cringe now when I hear the title American Idol, as I know what it is. I know what I hear and what I think when I hear this is American Idol. But 200 years from now, 2,000 years from now, what will people think when they hear that phrase? Will they know what we thought of? Will they know what came to our minds? Or will they take the time to ask, what did they hear? That's the question we're asking as we journey with Jesus and the crowds who are steadily walking towards Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, in the last week of Jesus' life. We're spending time looking at the texts that surround the days leading up to the betrayal, the beating, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. We're looking at the words Jesus spoke, both verbal and nonverbal, and asking the question, what did they hear? This morning we're spending time looking at Luke's account of the temple cleansing. You guys have already spent time looking at it, studying it a little bit. As you did, did you wonder to yourself, what did they hear? When Jesus said, my temple should be a house of prayer and not a den of thieves. You know, I wondered that, what they heard, as I imagine it was quite the scene. Before we look closely at what those surrounding the action that day would have heard, I want to give just a little history that may help us understand this text a little bit more. Most of you are familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system. This sacrificial system was the process God instituted through Moses for people to be made right with him. Three times a year, all the Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices and pay the temple tax, which was a half a shekel. Now, depending on their personal financial situation, the the sacrifices would differ from a couple of doves to lambs to bulls. The thing with the sacrifices is they had to be spotless. They had to be unblemished. They had to have nothing wrong with them. So you could bring one from home. But if you were traveling any sort of distance, there was great chance of injury to the animal if you brought your own perfect animal from home. So most times what would happen is the people would wait until they got to Jerusalem to buy their sacrificial animal. There were plenty of markets surrounding the temple where sojourners could make that purchase. But here was the hiccup. The priests inside the temple had to inspect the animal to make sure it was right. It was good. It was worthy of sacrifice. This was pretty subjective. It's sad to say, but oftentimes the priest would find something wrong with the animal being brought from outside of the temple. So the travelers would be forced to buy another animal from inside the temple. One that had already received the priest's stamp of approval. Normally this would be no big deal, but two things took place on the inside with those animals. First, the prices were jacked up, like very high. You could buy two doves for equivalent to our dollar outside the temple in their marketplaces. 
But you go inside, and the average cost of two doves was about $15. See the price increase? That's one of the things the temple vendors inside would do. Now, let's make it even worse. The temple shops were known as the booths of Annas, who was the high priest at that time. So they were the property of the high priest's family. The high priest's family held a monopoly on the temple vendors. That means the temple leadership. The priests inside the temple received all the profits. And they made a killing. No pun intended. It's no wonder that in today's story, Jesus got a little heated. Some enormous price hikes on temple-certified sacrificial animals. This was legalized stealing. That's our background. Now we come to our text. Luke chapter 19, 45 to 48. And we're going to be camping out in here all morning. So if you want to turn there, go ahead. Luke 19, verse 45 and 46. Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for the sacrifices. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When Jesus said this, what did the people around him hear? What would those random people who had come to the temple that day to make sacrifices, not knowing anything out of the ordinary was going to take place, what did they hear when they saw Jesus come in and start ushering temple vendors out and say what he said? I want to look at the two different types of people, the two different groups of people that I think would have been in the temple that day. The Jews and the non-Jews, the Gentiles. First, let's look at the Jews. What did they hear? Jesus said in verse 46, The Scriptures declare, My temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. For the devout Jew who would have been in the temple that day, for the temple leadership, I'm going to assume that they knew their own Hebrew Scriptures. Now, with that assumption, I believe they heard two very clear things in Jesus' statement. In the first half of his declaration, the Jews listening would have been drawn back to what they heard in Isaiah 56. To some echoes from there, they would have been reminded of the fact that in calling the temple a house of prayer, Jesus was reclaiming what God's original intention for the temple was. It was to be a place for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8. Listen to how inclusive this is. This is what the Lord says Be just and fair to all. Do what is right and good, for I am coming soon to rescue you and to display my righteousness among you. Blessed are all who are careful to do this. Blessed are those who honor my Sabbath days of rest and keep themselves from doing wrong. Don't let the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be part of His people. And don't let the eunuchs say, I'm a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commits their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one, and it will never disappear. Verse 6, God says, I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve Him and love His name, 
who worship Him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest and who hold fast to My covenant. I will bring them to My holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in My house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices. And here's the verse Jesus quoted. Because My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the Sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others too besides My people Israel. Could you feel the all-inclusiveness of that passage? Did you catch that right after Jesus' quote on my temple should be a house of prayer were three little words that were enormous in weight? Isaiah 56, 7, my temple will be a house, will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Let's catch a little bit of irony here. The scene playing out in today's is in the section of the temple called the court tiles. It's the only place inside the walls of the temple where non-Jews are allowed to come and worship. So in a very small sense, that passage in Isaiah is being lived out. But, you look again at what's going on in the only place in the temple the Gentiles were allowed to worship. It has become a marketplace. And with a marketplace, there is the selling of live animals that are probably not using their inside church voices. Right? I won't do the sheep. There are the merchants who are bartering the price of animals with buyers. I can't imagine it was a very conducive place to worship for the Gentiles. Can you? There's been a few of you who have come to me and said, man, James, it is, it is awful noisy in the sanctuary before we start church. Sure it would be good to have it a little bit quieter. Imagine how these Gentiles would have felt as they went to the house of God to worship, into the only place in the temple they're allowed to worship, and all they can hear is the mooing of cows and the bleeding of sheep. That's not a conducive place to worship. God had said, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Having read Luke several times over Advent, we know this is a focus for Jesus. This all nations bit. He welcomed Samaritans, outcasts, lepers, sinners, other Gentiles. Jesus, He lived the all nations that He was quoting in Isaiah. And I'm guessing that the Jews listening to Jesus that day as He drove out the merchants would have been reminded of these same passages. It's no wonder the scribes and the the priests were a little bit angry. Because this is totally against the people of God only mentality was lived so often. So those priests and leaders got mad. Verse 47 in Luke says, and that, after that, Jesus taught daily in the temple. But the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him. They got mad when they heard Jesus referencing that Isaiah 56, 7 passage. Now, since we're still looking at the Jews and what they would have heard, and since we're assuming they would have known their scriptures, we're assuming that those, especially the temple leadership, would have known what took place after Isaiah 56-7. Listen to how um, vehement a God is in the rest of this passage. That again, we're assuming the temple leadership knew. God said, come wild animals of the field, come wild animals of the forest, come and devour my people. For the leaders of my people, the Lord's watchmen, his shepherds, are blind and ignorant. 
They are like silent watchdogs that give no warning when danger comes. They love to lie around sleeping and dreaming. Like greedy dogs, they are never satisfied. They are ignorant shepherds, all following their own path and intent on personal gain. Come, they say, let's get some wine and have a party. Let's all get drunk. Then tomorrow we'll do it again and have an even bigger party. That doesn't paint a very good picture of the temple leadership in Isaiah's time, does it? Not very good. Now can we assume that the temple leadership in Jesus' time was smart enough to realize Jesus may have been comparing them to to the leadership in Isaiah's time? You know, the Jews listening that day, especially the Jewish leadership, were following were, were, uh, the, the leadership there. Had they made the connection with the verses following Jesus' house of prayer, they would have been angry. But when Jesus kept going, giving an even louder echo of another Old Testament prophet, the Jews would have had even more reason to be mad. The passage he quotes again, Jesus says, Scriptures declare, my house will be called a house of prayer but you have turned it into a den of thieves. A den of thieves. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus who writes about caves, which is the same word for den, that criminals would go to to escape justice. Groups of criminals would go to these caves and hide, and and apparently the caves became well known. Well enough known for a, a historian to write about them. You guys remember uh, last week and the week before, the, the entire nation was kind of fixed on, on the, the manhunt for the ex-LAPD member who had killed a couple of cops and, and a civilian or two, right? He had ran to, to California, and, and he went into hiding. This guy ultimately ran and hid in a little cabin up in the woods trying to escape justice. In a sense, that was his den for thieves, For Jesus to say something like this, inferring that there was thievery going on in the temple, it would have been bad enough. But when we look at the passage he quotes that out of, there's even more reason for the Jewish leadership to get a little hot under the collar. I've asked Elena to read Jeremiah chapter 7, 1 through 11, and this is the passage that Jesus quotes Den of Thieves out of. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, Go to the entrance of the Lord's temple and give this message to the people. O Judah, listen to this message from the Lord. Listen to it, all of you who worship here. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Even now, if you quit your evil ways, I will let you stay in your own land. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, The Lord's temple is here. The Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop your murdering. And only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. Then I will let you stay in this land that I gave to your ancestors to keep forever. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all of those other new gods of yours, and then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe, only to go right back to all those, all those evils again? 
Don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. Don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? This was not a good page in the history of Israel. God kept trying to get the Israelites' attention, trying to get them to obey Him, and they kept doing their own thing. And He said to them, Am I the one they are hurting? Most of all, they hurt themselves to their own shame. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will pour out My terrible fury on this place. Its people, animals, trees, and crops will be confused, consumed by the unquenchable fire of My anger. This is not good, is it? Not good at all. So for Jesus to make a clear reference to a line in this passage, it didn't sound good to the Jews listening that day. In a very real sense, injustice and wrongs were being committed in the temple. You got to hear a little bit of that in the history I began with. There was certified stealing and corruption going on. And what did those who oversaw the temple, who who oversee the temple, the stealing and corruption do? They ran to the safety of their caves. In this case, the cave was the temple. Religious leaders and scholars had distanced themselves from and even violated the needy, and then they took refuge in the temple, using the house of God to justify their practices. It's no wonder when Jesus came into Jerusalem, He entered the temple and drove out the people, saying, my temple should be called a house of prayer, but you have called it a den of thieves. I don't think that the Jews listening that day, when Jesus heard this, would have been very thrilled with what he was saying. But what about the non-Jews? What about the Gentiles who were there? Were they familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures enough to know these references? I'm going to assume they weren't. And I don't have any study to back me on that, so I could be wrong. But let's assume they did not know the Jewish Scriptures enough to have the same Old Testament echoes. They were listening to Jesus' words. These Gentiles would have still heard some very pointed things. First, I think they would have heard and seen Jesus' emphasis on what the temple was supposed to be. A house of prayer. They would have heard and seen Jesus' emphasis on what the temple was supposed to be. A house of prayer. And we've seen it lived out throughout Luke's Gospel in that manner. We saw Zechariah on the inner courts doing his sacrifices and those outside the inner courts but still inside the temple were praying. That's Luke 1.10. We see both Simeon and Anna spent hours praying. We see Jesus tell the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector inside the temple doing what? Praying. The Gentiles who first who heard the first words out of Jesus' mouth, my temple will be called a house of prayer, could tell Jesus was serious about this. That's the first thing they would have heard. Now the second thing, I think Jesus' emphasis on what the temple should be was emphasized to the Gentiles by what He did to the temple vendors. He drove them out. This would have told the Gentiles that Jesus didn't want His temple being a place of commerce. And He was serious about it. I want you to catch something that I'd never caught, even in all the times I've read Luke's Gospel. Look at who got really, really mad at Jesus for his actions that day. Look at verse 47. It says, After that day, Jesus taught daily in the temple. But the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, 
and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill Jesus. You got the leading priests, you got the teachers of religious law, and you have these other leaders of the people. This is not the normal tandem that Jesus so often pairs together as he critiques the temple system. Normally it's the leading priests, which we call the Pharisees, or the, and the, the teachers of religious law, the scribes. But Luke very intentionally points out this third group, leaders of the people. Other translations read the principal men of the people, or the chief among the people. And I like the way the Living Bible translates it. It says the business community. This makes a lot of sense because these temple vendors were leaders in the business community. They were the temple vendors, the leaders of the commerce. And they were ready and ramped up for the biggest week of the year when it came to profits and monies made. This scene takes place during Passover week, right? When the biggest crowds were coming to Jerusalem. And anyone who was everyone and anyone would have been making sacrifices. They could be ritually clean to take part in the Passover celebration. This was big money time making. It was Black Friday, Christmas, Hoopfest, Bloomsday, and Mother's Day all crammed into one day for seven days straight. These temple vendors were going to make bank. But Jesus says, and the Gentiles heard, hey, you guys don't do this in here. This is not what my temple is supposed to be. These Gentiles witnessed in action and in word Jesus telling these leaders what the temple should be. Not a den of thieves, as he drove out the vendors. As he drove out the vendors, you know. I wonder if those Gentiles said to themselves, "Wow, is this guy serious? Does he really mean that religion and, and commerce will no longer be connected?" I think the Jews or the Gentiles listening that day and seeing Jesus' words saw one more thing or heard one more thing. They realized that Jesus was a man of passion. When he came to the temple and started removing merchants, the word Luke used to describe Jesus and what he was doing was a very intentional word. It says Jesus was driving out, was casting out. Where have we heard this phrase before in Luke's Gospel? Anytime Jesus interacted with demons, right? Luke eleven fourteen. one day Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak. Exact same word that Luke chooses on how Jesus removed the temple vendors. You know, when the forces of evil go toe-to-toe with the forces of good, there has to be passion involved. And I don't think that Jesus kind of said, hey, temple merchants, if, if you would oblige me, if you have a little spare time later and... and and it works with your schedule. Would you, would you mind leaving, please? I don't think he went about it that way. Luke says he cast them out. He cast them out. This is a man full of passion. The people would have seen that. And had they taken a step back and looked at just Jesus' actions, they would have realized, Wow. This guy is coming in willing to attack the way things have always been done in a very public and non-fearful way. Talk about creating a scene, right? Come in, make the leadership mad, and then stick around. Is that the way that we're taught to get people's attention these days? Go in, make your boss mad, and then stay there? Not really. And yet that's what Jesus did. 
made a scene, stirred the pot, and then stuck around. And it got the attention of the Gentiles. In fact, it got the attention of all the crowds. Verse 48 says, but they could think of nothing to do. This was the leadership trying to kill him. Because all the people hung on every word Jesus said. All the people. The Greek word here denotes general masses, not just the religiously minded. These were the groups that would have showed up when Jesus fed 5,000, and they would have come back the next day. This was all the people. And Luke says they hung on every word. They hung on every word. That is the only time in all of Scripture that that phrase is used. Luke is wanting to make sure that we realize how passionate and how important this is to Jesus and how this would have affected the crowds around him. Oh, they were not only intrigued, but they were captivated by what he was saying and doing. So what would they have heard that day when Jesus said, My temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. For those in the church, for those in the religion, the Jewish faith, the the, the Jews listening, they would have heard echoes of a God who wanted a place of worship where all would be welcome. They would have heard echoes of a God who was willing to discipline his people when they were blatantly disobeying him. And for those outside the religion, the Gentiles, they would have heard a man who was passionate. Passionate about what the temple should be, a place of prayer, and what it shouldn't be, a place of commerce. When people hear this passage today, when people look at the church today, what do they hear? What do they hear the church's people proclaiming? Maybe to those on the inside, if we're talking to other church people, do they hear us competing for the same sheep, the same flock, trying to grow our churches? Do they hear us focusing on winning new sheep, this light of the world type, uh, bring them in that Isaiah 56 talked about? To those inside the faith, Are they saying we're only supportive of a certain type of people? Are there certain groups of people that we're willing to keep, maybe in the court of Gentiles, in any church? I'm not just talking first church. Do we have a place where we say, maybe you've got some sins in your life that I know God will forgive, but we really haven't forgiven yet, so you guys can worship over there. Y'all can volunteer in the children's ministry because it's quiet in there. Do other believers, whether local or global, see us too involved in commerce? Do do they see consumerism driving the church? Do people pick a church based on the better product it offers than other churches? To those outside the faith, do they see a welcoming people? Not just on a Sunday morning, but into our lives. Do they see a church that is ready for all nations to be accepted? Do those outside the faith hear us as a people of prayer? Do they see us as a people of peace, as a people of acceptance? Or do those outside the faith look and see a social club, a political think tank, an exclusive agency that is ultimately friendly, but not willing to accept people into our lives? The life of the church. I realize I'm asking a lot of questions and not giving a lot of answers. 
And I realize that these questions require us to step outside of what we know and look at church from a different angle. I wrestle with each of these questions for our own community of faith. I wrestle with these questions when it comes to the church in the West, which we are part of. I wrestle with these questions for the global church at all. I don't think I'm going to give you guys a take-home point today, because in our small groups, the times we looked at Scripture, number five was your take-home point. You know what it says, what's one thing you can do? I trust that the Spirit of God can speak to you through Scripture and through those in the church just as clearly as He can speak to you through someone giving a sermon. So do what you thought of this week on that last question, that number five, and keep wrestling with me for these other questions that I have finished this morning with. Let's pray. God, we got a lot of questions this morning. It's interesting to take a look and and try and put ourselves in the shoes of those who were in the temple that day when you came and cleansed it. It's interesting to think of what they would have heard, what they would have seen. And Lord, it's interesting to try and apply that to us today. Lord, we want to be a group of people who welcomes everyone. We want to be a group of people who focuses on worshiping Jesus and not on uh, different programs and, and consumeristic tendencies. God, we want to be a group of people where if you came into our church, you would say, that is a house of prayer. And God, we can only do that with your help and with your guidance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.